Well, it's October, and uh, it is tradition of many churches to be developing their budget for the next year, and we're working on that ourselves. The the deacons are working faithfully to determine the uh, needs next year and uh, assessing this purchase of the property next door and that kind of thing and how we're going to do that. And because so many churches work on their budget, they often devote October to giving month or at least a Sunday in October to giving Sunday. We've never, that's not a bad practice, but we've never actually done that until today <laughs> because, because we are closing out the book of uh, Philippians and we're going to be finishing up that precious epistle uh, this Sunday. And the Lord, uh, um, the Lord, the Apostle Paul, the Lord through the Apostle Paul, let's put it that way, is thanking the Philippians for a gift that he's given them. And he speaks about the, the principle of generosity. And again, the whole theme throughout the book of Philippians is this idea of being able to be on the journey to the next life in joy. Uh, There should not be this morose discouragement and and, uh, and anxiety that so many of us feel. There is possibility to walk in this life with joy, knowing the Lord loves you, that he cares for you, that he died for your sins, and that you have a heavenly home awaiting for you. Part of the experience of joy comes when you hold on loosely to the things of this world. The Philippians did that, and they've given us an example for us to experience that kind of joy and generosity this morning as we are closing out this precious book. And my hope that you will also be able to experience the joy of generosity and understanding what Jesus said, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he bless us as we look at this passage. Father, we do turn to you right now, Lord, and we just we just open up our hearts to you. I pray, Lord God, that you would convict us of our sin, but also, Lord, that you would encourage us in the things that we're doing right. I don't think any of us feels like we're as generous as we ought to be, but some of us have not even begun the process of generosity. So I pray that you'd help us to take this text and, be able, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would minister to us, Lord, and help us to look at this text in a light least favorable to our sin. We desperately want to live in faith. How we hold on to the things of this world, how we show generosity to others and to the church is a wonderful, wonderful demonstration of that faith. Please, God, give us truth this morning. Let us leave and go home a changed people because of what happened here in this service of worship. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to Philippians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 14 through 23, as Paul closes up this letter. And I'm going to read the verse in its entirety, and then we'll break it down in four different parts here. Philippians 4, verses 14 through 23, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. You brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You'll probably find your home group helps insert of assistance as we break down the four different parts of this text. You're going to see, first of all, that generosity is praised in verses 14 through 18, that God provides in verses 19 through 20. Then there's greetings of the saints in verses 21 through 22, and grace to you in verses 23 as the Apostle Paul closes out this precious letter. So first of all, generosity, praise. Notice he starts off here, yet, and of course you always want to look at the a verse in the context of the rest of the letter here. And remember that this is a thank you letter, in a sense. He is writing, he's like a good southern boy who got a gift. He's writing a, a thank you letter to the Philippians there. Uh, and he is thanking them for the financial support here that uh, they had received, that they had revived their concern for him. Uh, and uh, then he goes on to talk previously, as we looked at the Lord's, last Lord's Day, about how content he is and how he's learned to get along in prosperity and in difficulty and he has learned to be content. And I think one, one of the things Apostle Paul is concerned about is, he, is he's emphasized this point of being content so much he might think the Philippians are going to think that he's ungrateful, that maybe they didn't need uh, to send them this gift and that he didn't really need it. And he, he somehow, somehow maybe this gift is ruining his opportunity to be content. So he, so he qualifies his point here and he says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And he goes on to say, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you only. The, 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 the word there for share, the word there for partnership is the word that we've seen throughout this, this letter of koinonia. It's also going to be used the word for fellowship here. They, they consider the Apostle Paul in jail in Rome as being in partnership. They are partners with him and he is partners with them and they have this mutual relationship here. And that's one of the essentials in understanding your giving to the church, your generosity to Christian ministries. Uh, in a sense, uh, technically, the staff of this church, for instance, are employees of the church. If we have to fill out a, a mortgage application, they ask who's your employers and you tell them the church. But you should not view them as such. You should view them as partners in ministry. They have been called, set aside to be able to spend most of their time in the ministry, and you receive the benefits of that, so we have a partnership relationship. So that's what Paul is trying to emphasize there. He's not the Philippians employee. He is their partner in the ongoing ministry here. Uh, and, and this is something, again, he emphasizes throughout the entire letter. Uh, Kent Hughes says this, though the Philippians were not in prison with Paul, they participated uh, in his aff affections by their sympathy and their monetary sacrifice. So it's not just an issue of sending the money. They are praying for him. They are helping him carry the load of ministry because the minister is normally going to be the one that's going to be the, the number one uh, uh, victim in terms of attacks by the evil one and very often the temptations of the world and that kind of thing. So they're going together with him. They understand the importance of that. And, they, and he praises them for their spirit of generosity. Proverbs 19.17 says this, Whoever is generous to the, four, uh, to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And this is one of the things that absolutely thrills Paul. 
he, when he got that gift, yeah, he needed to pay for his own incarceration. He had to pay for his own food, his own clothing, his own care. He can't make tents. He's chained to a kind of hard to make a tent when you're chained to a Roman guard, right? So he was blessed to have that. But as much as anything, he just thought, bless you, Philippians, you're growing up in Christ. You are showing faith in Christ. This is true worship. And he realizes the Lord is going to bless them. In terms of giving and receiving, these are accounting terms, much like our credit and our debit here. Uh, and, and Paul, this money was important to Paul. And he goes back and takes them back to the past when they had shared with him in previously. And you remember Paul, if you go through the book of Acts, there are times when Paul uh, worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker. And one of the reasons why he did that is that there was this bad reputation of traveling philosophers, traveling sophists who would go from town to town and town, and they would sort of bilk people out of their money uh, in order to support their ministry. And of course, that happens in evangelical Christianity as well uh, at times. But he did not ever want to, he wanted to be above reproach to where they saw the Christian church, his apostolic ministry as being different from these traveling philosophical salesmen. So there were times when he worked all day long making tents and he would teach whenever he possibly could if he thought that there would be a problem with him being able to get money from the local church. Well, the, the Philippians understood that. And in Thessalonica, they sent him money so that would free him up to be able to devote his entire time to the ministry. So he is praising them for doing that and asking them uh, and, and praising them for doing that and reminding them how important that was. Because as he told the Corinthians, he did not want to be like so many peddlers of God's word. And he, even when he went to Corinth, now here was Corinth was a rich church. Corinth was, that's kind of the nouveau rich port city, kind of the new, the place to be. It was all the fad to be Corinthian, and they had a bunch of money. But, but because they were so immature, Paul was concerned about asking them for funds. So even then, the poor Philippians, which was, was a poorer church in Macedonia, sent him money and blessed him uh, so that they would not be, he would not be a burden to the Corinthians. He says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That, I mean, talk, that's a little humbling, right? I mean, here's this wealthy church that wasn't willing uh, to give to Paul, or Paul felt uncomfortable about asking there for money, and here's this poor church sending money to free him up. That should have been a little bit of a, a wake-up call for the attitude that the Corinthian church had, which the Philippian church did not have. So here's kind of the application. God expects us to be like the Philippian church, to be generous givers. Uh, he expects us to, to, to kind of have an, an investment strategy, a partnership with the church. Now, we got a lot of visitors here today, so this may not include this church. You may, you may need to be doing this to your local church, but however you do it, you need to see yourself as supporting the partnership ministry of your church, and you need to give to the point where you can feel that giving to be part of what's going on. Again, the Philippian church was not a wealthy church, but they were very generous. They went to a great deal of effort to send Paul money in his need. But Paul makes this point, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. Now, this is powerful. There is, again, Paul has certainly helped. He's benefited from this, but what he, what he loves about this is that it's not just about the money. This is worship. This is pure worship. Proverbs 22, 9 says this, He who is generous will be blessed here. 
Uh, and, and the reason why is because whatever they've given to Paul, in a sense, they're also sending that to heaven at, uh, to be put on their account there before the Lord. Second Corinthians 9 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I mean, I don't know. We don't have too many farmers here, uh, but, you know, if you've ever, let's say winter ryegrass. You ever plant a winter ryegrass? You, you throw out a little bit of winter ryegrass uh, seed, what do you get? A little bit of winter ryegrass. It is hard to say winter ryegrass. <laughs> I meant to do that. Uh, you put a little bit, you put a lot of seed out, you get lots of grass. You put a little bit of money out, you might get a little bit of investment in return. You put a lot of money out. You get a lot of it. It's just a principle, right? It's a principle of reaping and sowing. It's amazing how often Scripture goes back to that principle when it comes to your finances, your money. Jesus himself said this, Matthew chapter 6, and this is probably one of the most profound texts in all of Scripture. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither raw moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really an indicator of where you are spiritually. If you are holding back on generosity, you are stunting your spiritual growth. You could be 50 years old, but if you're not tithing and you're just tipping, you're like a child in many ways because you've not trusted the Lord and he is, he is not going to be able to grow you in the way you need to grow because you're accommodating your fears, your greed, whatever it might be. Hughes again says this, the truth is the only money that we will see again is that which we give away and the money will return with compounded interest. I love that. I love that. A bunch of us celebrate birthdays in October. And, uh, and you know, every year I, I start doing the math. How, how many years left do I have? Uh, you know, I mean, and you look at, you see, you see your life as seasons. Well, some of us right now are in November of the year, December of the year. We're going to, and, and, and the closer you get to the point in time where you're going to see the Lord face to face, the more important it is for us to be able to know that there's treasure waiting for us. There's blessings waiting for us. Uh, we have lived our life in accountability towards the Lord. Uh, and that's real important. Some of you young people, though, if you don't start this principle now, you're not going to do it then. It's much easier. If you're making $16,000 a year, it's much easier to give 10% of that than to start when you're 60 years old and then have not been into that habit. Paul goes on to say here, he's, he's, again, he's celebrating these gifts because of the profit that's given to them. Uh, he, and he has received full payment and more. It's interesting, archaeological discoveries uh, will actually find uh, uh, different, uh, different uses of the same term that he uses there for full payment. It can also mean to have an excess and overflow and to have more and enough. He is, just, he is just celebrating the generosity of the Philippians here. It's more beyond his minimum needs. They, were, they actually gave even more than he actually needed. He's writing... To say thank you. He says, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Again, they didn't just do the minimum. Let me give you an illustration of why this matters so much. You know, Jesus says he's, he's you remember the, the conversation. It's really kind of a heartbreaking conversation because you kind of hurt for this guy. But the rich young ruler, 
the rich young ruler goes up, and he's, he's a pious young man. He has been faithful in, in so many ways, and, but, but he's got this insecurity about his own salvation. And he goes up, uh, and he says, oh, yeah, I've kept the law from my youth and everything, but what else do I need to have salvation? But Jesus understands that he's a coveter. He, he's, he's been, uh, actually, he, he's, not look, he's looking at the outward expressions. I've not committed adultery, you know, I've not blasphemed, I've kept the Lord's day. But he doesn't even know the nature of his own heart in coveting. So G- Jesus says to this young ruler, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you with great difficulty, a rich person enter and will not enter. I'm sorry, with get, get difficulty, a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is it because it is somehow um, morally reprobate to be rich? No, it's because it's harder for them to see the need for heaven. They think they're experiencing it now. They think they've kind of above some of these things, perhaps. And they are very tempted with the things of the world, perhaps consumed with their wealth, as opposed to a poor person who really relies upon the Lord. But that's, that the story for rich people going to heaven doesn't stop right there. Let me keep going here uh, with Luke. And he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. And he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to this place, he looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Don't you love the drama of this passage? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And then you remember what Jesus says? And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was not saved because he decided to be generous. His generosity was evidence that he had just been saved. He had received the grace of the Lord. No one else was going to give Zacchaeus. He was working for the bad guys. He was a tax collector for the Romans. But Jesus gave him grace. And he said, because of that, I'm going to give back what I have taken in the past. Zacchaeus' salvation was evidenced by his generosity. That is the case with us. This is why Paul is so happy for the Philippians. Your salvation is evidenced by your generosity. You just let go of the things of the world and you trust in the Lord for provision. But I love this too. He goes on to say, this was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God here. So Paul is alluding back to the Old Testament Uh, Very often they would offer a sacrifice and then they would throw incense on top of that burning sacrifice in order to to make the odor beautiful and and, and sound wonderful. And they're basically lifting up an attractive odor to to God himself so that it comes up into heaven mixed with their prayers and that the Lord is is pleased with that. You know, one of the things about the Reformation, we don't do incense in our churches uh, it, uh, that's an Old Testament view, view of things. Uh, it's fulfilled in the New Te- Covenant and that sort of thing. But if you've ever smelled really wonderful incense, frankincense, if you've ever smelled that, it, it just smells good. And that's what God is saying. In a sense, when those collection plates come out and we're taking up that offering, in a sense, that, that, that offering, the, the, the odor is coming up into heaven. And 
and heaven is just, uh, God is just inhaling it. And, and, he is, and he is going to bless you as a result of providing that wonderful, fragrant sacrifice uh, to us. You know, it, it, this is important, too, to keep in mind. When we talk, uh, I think Elder Brendel said it this morning, when we say uh, where it's time for our tithes and our offerings, that's, that's part of worship. That's why it's part of every worship service here. But when we said we're going to worship the Lord through our tithes and our offerings, that's not just a throwaway line. You're really doing that. You're really performing that worship. But here's the tragedy. Most Christians have no idea what it really means to give uh, to, to the point of, uh, of generosity. Uh, most Christians don't tithe, they tip. Now, I honestly don't know if that's your case or not. It's not like I went back and got the giving sheet out before I planned this, uh, this sermon. I don't know what you're giving. But I want you to be honest whether or not you are being generous with your giving. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and, and I want you to... I want you to be honest on whether or not you're given to the point where it really makes a difference, where it's real worship, or you're just trying to subdue your conscience a little bit. Listen to this statistic. This is a recent study that was done. It said uh, uh, for the generosity factor, evangelicals and giving, they actually interviewed, gave them extensive battery of questions, a thousand different American Protestant evangelicals. Okay, that's, that's us, American Protestant evangelicals. They said the majority say that, yes, tithing is a command of Scripture. Christians ought to tithe. But only something like 13% actually engage in the practice. Now, there's hypocrisy right there. For you to say, yes, yes, tithing is certainly something you need to do, but I ain't going to do it. I mean, think of, think of another category. Yes, adultery is a sin, and yet only 13% avoid adultery. It's the same kind of principle here. Obedience is obedience. Law is law. So the, this, uh, this text goes on, this, this study goes on to say that basically you have to take into account people who give more than tithe and that kind of thing. But this was shocking to me, uh, partly because I don't think it's the experience of this church. Bless you for that. The median church giving was 0.57%. Not a tithe. You know, what's tithe? 10%. Not, it wasn't even 1%, 0 0.57. Point, I don't care what you make, 0.57%. You probably give more to the waitress at the steakhouse than you're giving to the church right now, 0.57%. And we wonder why we struggle so. We wonder about why, why evangelism seems to be so ineffective in so many ways. We wonder about so many church splits. We wonder about what's going on in terms of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, because we don't trust the Lord. Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Folks, we live in an age. This is one of the only things you really can do to test your faith. The Visigoths are not likely to come streaming across the border of Georgia anytime soon. If there's a crop failure, we'll get our corn from Iowa, right? We just don't live on the edge which most of our brothers and sisters in human history have lived on. We have got so many comforts. This is one of the few things you can do to test yourself, to deny yourself. I am going to give sacrificially. I am going to do so starting young. I'm going to do so for the rest of my life. And it's an important principle throughout all the scripture. There's a number of verses about tithing. Let me go back to Malachi 3, which is one of the favorite, because it kind of it, it, it makes it personal to God when we're not generous. Malachi 3. 
He starts out now again. Malachi comes with the, the restoration after Babylonian captivity. And what was seemed to be happening at the time is you had a bunch of people in ministry. But because the giving was so low that the, the people who were the priests and the Levites, the people who were supposed to be taken up of the temple worship, were actually having to go out and get jobs because they couldn't be set apart for the work of the ministry. There wasn't enough money in the treasury to, to pay them to devote themselves to ministry. Well, God takes that personally. and He says, will a man rob God? How in the world can you rob God? Yet you are robbing me because you say, have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse and you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, being the bring the full tithes in the storehouse and there will be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. That's a huge promise. Now, you got to be careful with this. This doesn't mean if you start tithing today, you're just not going to have any more problems. I think what's interesting, we also had a text on this for the men's Bible study on Thursday, going through Galatians, the whole principle of tithing. So, so God's kind of double hitting you men who came to Thursday morning. All right? So it, I wouldn't ignore this. But, but, but every tithe check I've written over the last 40 years, I've felt. I have felt. Okay? And yet there's blessings that I don't even know have been blessings. It just sort of seems to be sort of part of life. There's some people who will say, boy, I tithe and my business double. That can happen. Let me tell you what else it can happen. You can start tithing, and guess what? Your water heater goes out. Your car needs new tires. The child needs braces. That can happen too. But guess what? It's the God who makes your child have braces that you worship, that you're tithing to. So praise God. Praise God. It's the God who doubles your business. So praise God. You're placing yourself in an in a opportunity when you are tithing. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money for some of you. You're placing yourself in an opportunity. I'm going to trust the Lord. Good or ill, I'm going to trust the Lord. And again, in all of our comforts, all of our health care system, all of the conveniences that we have, there's just not a lot of opportunities for those kind of things sometimes. This is important. So you don't want to miss out on the profit. You're literally, you're, you're missing out on the best investment you can possibly make on this planet by sending things up to heaven uh, there, to be rewards that you're going to enjoy forever and ever. You're missing out on that if you are not, if you're not tithing to, to the point where it costs you something. Now, how much is a tithe? How much is 10%? Uh, you decide. Is it net? Is it gross? That's hard to tell because a lot of you own your own businesses. You've got to take out expenses. You, you I'm retired. Well, you, you, listen, I'm not going to impose that upon you. God loves a cheerful giver. You determine what you're going to do, but you, you're determined and you try to keep that with everything that you, you know how to do. And take it out first. Listen, listen, you think about all the bills. I've got a whole spreadsheet of people I owe money to. You know, you got power, you got internet, you got... Uh, I'm now depressed as I'm thinking about all things. Uh, this is the one that's fun. This is the one that gives you joy. Oh, boy, I'm giving money to the church. You need that. You need that with all the other expenses that are coming through. But God says in Malachi, test him in this. Test him in this. 
testimony I gave on Thursday mornings. I, I had gotten converted up at Clemson, and I was standing with a bunch of people. There was something going out on the field, and I just mentioned to one of the, the pastors of the church, I just sold some, some scuba equipment and uh, got $800 for this scuba equipment. And he said, that's great. Are you going to tithe? And I said, what's a tithe? I mean, I've never even heard of the concept. What's a tithe? And he kind of explained to me. And so at age 19, I thought, okay, well, that's what God wants you to do. I'm going to do it, right? That's what I want for y'all. If you just make it part of your life, part of the joy of your life, you will keep it up and the Lord will bless you. And again, you may not even know what those blessings are. So this idea that it's a fragrant aroma that's well-pleasing to God. Paul gives us some insight here in 2 Corinthians 9 on how your attitude ought to be. So I thought it necessary to urge brothers to go ahead of you and arrange in advance for a gift you've promised. They had promised to give a donation to the Judean churches that were struggling with famine. So that you may be ready and willing to give, not as an exactation. In other words, he doesn't want you to think of this as a tax and a requirement. He wants you to give with a cheerful heart. This is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. There's our text again. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So you decide what your tithe is. I mean, there's lots of books out there. I've got sheets of verses that might be of assistance to you. You decide what that is. But I tell you what, it's not, it's not 0.57%. It is not 0.57%. And if you were giving 0.57% and you decide, I think I'm going to give 1.3% next year, you're in sin. You're in sin. You are not trusting the Lord. It's time to, you know, people will say, yeah, I'm going to give a little bit more. I'm going to give 1% more every year. And so 10 years from now, I'm really going to get, you're in sin. That's not faith. That's not faith. Well, but I've already got this car and everything. Get rid of the car. If you've developed a lifestyle where you can't afford to tithe, your lifestyle is too high for your, your income. And I'm not telling you something I don't practice myself. And that many other people in this church practice. I'm just trying to be as as forward as I can, this is the only giving Sunday we've had in 16 years. i got to take advantage of it. And if it's not to this church, it's to whatever church that you are, you are being ministered to. Acts 20, 35 says this. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give and then to receive. Now we see here kind of a, uh, uh, he's going to go into the, the, according to the riches that come in Christ Jesus. This is how the blessings are going to come here. So God provides, verses 19 through 20, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God the Father be glory forever. Amen. How rich is God? I mean, he kind of like owns it all, right? And, and that is the basis for the blessings that he's going to bring into your life when you give sacrificially, when you give faithfully. He says that he's going to supply every need of yours according to his riches here. Luke chapter 6 says this, Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put pouring into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if you want to receive much from God, you give much to God. So Paul has been well supplied. They have given from, uh, from their poverty. They have given in excess of what he actually needed. And he is just blessing them for that. And Paul, because of what they're doing, he just breaks out in prayer here. To our God and Father be glory forever. This, uh, this is a doxology, a praise uh, that is fitting for him. Uh, he, and notice this. He says, our God, our Father. See, here's another thing. There's a relational component to this giving. 
when you're giving, when you're tithing, you're giving to the church, but you're really giving to God. And who is God? God is your Father. See, the pagans, they fear the gods. Uh, they, they are in terror of the gods. And they basically, when they give, they often try to bribe the god. Don't hurt me on my journey. I'm going to give you this to keep you from hurting me, to make you obligated to me. That's not the relationship we have with Yahweh. Because of what Jesus Christ did, he is our father. We're his children. You don't have to manipulate a loving father. He, he can't wait to give to you. He can't wait to bless you. I was, Googling, I was Googling Christmas presents for my grandson just last night. I can't wait till he opens up these Christmas presents. That's the attitude of our father. I can't wait to bless you. And yet, because you're not trusting him, he, he has to withhold that blessing. Uh, this is a doxology he opens up with. That Greek word doxology is, is a combination of words doxa, glory, and word, logos. So it's a good word, a glorifying word here. And then he breaks into amen, which means so let it be, right? He just can't help but praising God. But then he realizes he hadn't quite given the final greeting. So he gets here to greetings of the saints. Uh, to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So he's not just, uh, he, he, he wants to make sure that there's a relational quality that he maintains there. He's not just saying hello. He's communicating his passionate love for the church. And with Reformation Sunday coming up next Sunday, it's important probably to address this principle of saint. There's a lot of confusion about what is a saint. Saint is Paul's favorite word for you if you're a believer. If you're born again, if you're a true Christian, you are a saint. You do not have to be approved by the College of Cardinals to be a saint. You are a saint if you're saved. And this is important because there's so much confusion about this. But the idea of the in Roman Catholic theology, and I'll just quote one source here, because of his or her, talking about the saints, exemplary virtue, merit, devotion, religious achievement, he's, he is already exalted in heaven. And he can expect to enter heaven only by a prolonged stay in purgatory, most per people in general. Such a person is elevated to sainthood by an official decree of the Pope known as canonization is considered a model for those whose life is to be emulated. Canonized saints are publicly venerated. They're very, churches are very often uh, uh, named after them. Uh, make, they make icons of them and that kind of thing. But the principle is here is that us rank-and-file Christians, us normal folks, we got to spend a time in purgatory between this life and heaven to kind of cleanse us, to prepare us for heaven. There's absolutely no biblical truth of that. It was basically a way to manipulate people uh, in, in the medieval ages. This is something the reformers wrote against. But if you wanted to shortcut your stay in purgatory, you could, go, you could go to a saint and get some of their extra good works to make your stay a little bit shorter. Uh, Y'all, it's just wicked. It, it is so base. There is no biblical foundation for us. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no, if there anybody needed some purgatory, it was that thief on the cross. I mean, how, long, how, how many minutes was he even a believer, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the things we stand for is truth, biblical truth. And this idea that you have to be somebody special. to be The, the young, we just interviewed three teens this morning for membership. And uh, and if you know, I actually don't know how the membership interview went. I think it probably went pretty well. They're saints. They're saints. Please don't make it awkward for the rest of them and ask, ask them to help you get some time out of purgatory. They're, they're saints. 
So Paul's saying this. He's making this connection, the Roman church with the, uh, the church in Philippi. He is, he is saying this. And they're saints in Christ Jesus. Again, Christianity is the only religion where we are said to be in the founder. We are united with Christ Jesus. Other follow, follow, people in other religions follow the teachings. We actually are in Christ Jesus. He is in us. We have a relational quality there. And he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. Who would these include? Well, if you look at some of the parallel sources, uh, uh, Philippians is one of Paul's uh, prison epistles. So is Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So if you look at, do some kind of uh, research, looking especially at Colossians uh, uh, as well, You'll know that Timothy was with them. Epaphroditus, which we've already made reference to, was from the church of Philippi. Tychicus, uh, he is mentioned in Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, Anesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon. Uh, uh, Aristarchus, the fellow prisoner of Paul. Mark, the, the author of the gospel of Mark. Jesus, who's called Justice from Colossians chapter 4. Dr. Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke. And Demas, who ended up becoming worldly and leaving Paul at the last time. So he wants them to be united with these folks. To understand your company with these people. Your partnership is not just with me. It's everybody who claims the title Christian. Worldwide Church of God. We're all partners together in this endeavor. And he says, all the saints greet you. And then he makes this interesting point, especially those of Caesar's household. Again, Philippi was a Roman colony settled by former soldiers. So Caesar's household was of real importance to them. Who, who, was, who got saved in Caesar's household? <laughs> You remember the gospel was spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. So evidently some of those guards went in and started sharing the gospel with people in Caesar's household. But it would have included people who cleaned. It would have included uh, maids, cooks, musicians, people who kept the stables. There's this huge household of people that are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ in that corrupt environment. John Calvin says this, it is evident of divine mercy that the gospel had penetrated that sink pit of crimes and iniquities. You know, you know, people could actually get saved in Washington, D.C. You know that they are being saved right now. And then, of course, he closes with this wonderful word. Do we ever tire of the word grace? Boy, if there's one word that we just need to uh, embrace is grace, because we are certainly in need of it. He closes with the grace to the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He closes in the same way he opened in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's grace? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Because here's the thing is, if you're a Christian, if you're not tithing, God's still blessing you, right? But how much more could you enjoy if you were actually a generous, a generous giver, a giver who gave to the point of sacrifice for the glory of God? Test God in this. Test God in this and watch him uh, faithfully uh, bestow upon you more and more grace. Stephen Lawson closes this section by this statement. Though imprisoned and held in chains, the apostle remains robust in faith, resolute in hope. Despite his physical hardships and unjust sufferings, he is giving praise to God. Though the outlook was dim, the uplook has ever been brighter. And part of that can be you, uh, a testimony for yourself as well. Life is hard. Life is hard. But the vision of the future, the uplook instead of the downlook, is made all the more clear, all the more beautiful when you are giving generosity, generously and receiving the joy that comes with that. Lord, I pray that you would again take us Apply these truths. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get through our pride, get through our fear, Lord. It's scary. 
donating money. We, we could certainly have uses for that, Lord. But I pray, God, that you would help us to pass this test. Help us to be honest, to look at Scripture, and help us to be people of faith. And I pray, Lord God, that our money would be used well for your kingdom, for the glory and, uh, of your name, and for the good of your church. Bless us now with the joy of generosity, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.